We are keeping democracy alive. Check for pulse. Stand clear. Push to shock. So yes, there's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy. That people don't feel that they can do very much. You know what this is? This is a very Hamiltonian system. Alexander Hamilton being the guy here in a very un-Jeffersonian. In the case of the Republicans, it's dramatically the opposite. Uh, But even in the case of the Democrats. An absolute typhoon of terror against African Americans in the South. America's fascists are those people who think that Wall Street comes first and the American people come second. We're only seen as a financial sector that's uh, gotten out of hand. The shooting, the violence, that is not the drug problem. That is, in fact, the drug policy problem. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. The dignity of man is kind of difficult when there's a war going on. Rather undignified things happen. And if you think about war in the Middle East over the past four or five decades, uh, it's generally between the Palestinians and the Israelis. But in the last uh, few years, uh, it's taken a different focus and become extremely hot as opposed to a cold war. And it's more between and among Arabs and Persians, among Shia and Sunni, between different countries, be they nations or maybe not really nations. We're talking about, of course, uh, the wars in Syria, in Iraq, the power of Iran, the hundreds of thousands of refugees leaving the area. This is a big new crisis, and there's all different ways of analyzing it and trying to figure out what is really going on and what is in the best interests of the United States, of the people there, and of peace in general. It's not easy. It's very complicated, and there's a lot going on, and it, it's been uh, grabbing the headlines uh, for a long time. Here with us to unravel it all and hopefully shed some good, clear light on it all is uh, Ambassador Peter Galbraith. Peter, thanks so much for being with us and keeping democracy alive. Well, Bert, it's good to be with you again. Yes, he's been with us before, always uh, talks about interesting things, and Ambassador Peter Galbraith first served as uh, U.S. Ambassador, the first U.S. Ambassador to Croatia, a beautiful country. I would love to see you someday. From 1993 to 1998, he was the co-mediator and principal architect of the 1995 Erdut Agreement that ended the war in Croatia. In 2000-2001, he was the Director for Political, Constitutional, and Electoral Af- Affairs at the UN Transitional Administration in East Timor and Cabinet Member for Political Affairs and Timor uh, C- in East Timor's first interim government. In 2009, Peter served as Assistant Secretary General of the UN and Deputy Special Representative of the Secretary General in Afghanistan. He has been a professor of national security strategy at the National Defense University and is currently senior diplomatic fellow at the Center of Arms Control and Nonproliferation. He's the author of two books on the Iraq War, including the best selling The End of Iraq How American Incompetence Created a War Without End. 
Seems like we've seen this movie before, how American incompetence creates a war without end. Well, again, thanks for being with us, Peter. How and why did the civil war in Syria start? It uh, it appeared, and at least America on mainstream media, that there were uh, there was a civilian uprising, nonviolent protesters against uh, Bashir al-Assad. Is that accurate? And then it seems to have morphed into something else. How and why did that civil war start? It did begin as uh, peaceful protests uh, against uh, the Assad regime. Uh, be- began in a, a city, Dura, in the um, south of Syria. Uh, and um, and the I mean the, the Assad is a, a, a dictator uh, and um, has ruled he and his father have ruled Syria for forty years by force and so they the government responded to that with force uh, and in particular they um, picked up some young people who had engaged in the pro- in the protest uh, some badly mutilated bodies were later returned to the families. Uh, and and the whole thing accelerated. Uh, and when the government used force, um, a part of the opposition responded with force, and and that triggered the civil war. And who is now fighting against Assad? A few you know a few years ago, there was talk coming from President Obama himself about helping the so-called moderates in Syria, who were neither uh, Al Qaeda. Uh, nor ISIS, I don't think ISIS even existed then, I'm not sure, uh, helping the so-called moderates fighting to topple uh, al-Assad. And also, they were these moderates were allegedly uh, in opposition to al-Qaeda and ISIS. Were there ever such moderates? And what what happened with that whole idea of of helping the moderates to to overthrow this brutal dictator? Well, there were and there are moderates in Syria, uh, and they're, they're in, in two separate places. First, uh, the Assad dictatorship, although a dictatorship was never uh, as uh, uh, totalitarian, as all-encompassing as, for example, the one that Saddam Hussein uh, ran in Iraq. So there, was, there has always been an uh, internal opposition. as people uh, who are in Damascus who oppose the regime Periodically, they would get arrested and, and released, but, but it, sometimes they're called the loyal opposition, but they certainly were people who uh, wanted reforms in Syria, who want democracy, uh, and they're still there. Uh, and then there was uh, uh, the, 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 the element of those who, uh, uh, who started and participated in the, uh, what were initially the peaceful protests in 2011 against the regime. Yeah. Uh, and there were uh, and are some uh, moderate uh, uh, Syrian armed groups, um, uh, but uh, yeah. and, and in fact, although this is a separate story, uh, if you will, for the moderate opposition, the largest group is the is the Kurds, and they are the uh-huh. third largest group, militarily speaking, in the country. Uh, but they aren't what we conventionally refer to when we speak of the moderate opposition. The essential problem is that. Even from the start, uh, once the conflict turned from being peaceful protests uh, to uh, armed, the opposition to Assad uh, basically included uh, Islamist elements, nothing like ISIS or al-Qaeda, but Islamist elements. And they, uh, uh, from the beginning, the slogans were threatening to Syria's minorities, 
And in order to understand Syria, you need to understand that uh, some 40% of the country are religious or ethnic minorities. Um, about 12% are Alawites. Mm-hmm. This is a sect of Islam, uh, which uh, it belongs to, the, which uh, includes the Assad family. Right. Uh, it uh, has uh, it, it has very interesting rituals. It's secretive. Uh, uh, the Alawites uh, celebrate Christmas and Easter as well. The, the duties of a Muslim are basically not mandatory but advisory. Uh, and uh, they are viewed by Sunnis, and not just the extremists, but even moderate Sunnis, as apostates, uh, people who uh, have were once Muslims and have left, and at least the extremists believe that apostates should be put to death. About 10% of Syria's population is Christian. Uh, about 5% are Druze, which is another um, uh, group with mysterious religious rights, again, considered... Uh, sometimes considered Muslim, sometimes not, but if they are Muslim, they're apostates. And about 15% are Kurds, who for the most part are Sunni, but are not Arabs, and uh, who are, in their culture, uh, very secular. Uh, so uh, the opposition, um, when, it, when, the, when the uprising began and with these slogans began, uh, Alawites to the grave, Christians to Beirut, uh, basically became threatening to the minorities, and so uh, they stayed with Assad, uh, as did uh, 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 people who had benefited from the regime, uh, and Sunnis who had benefited, Sunnis who were secular. And so you ended up with a divide in the country where at least uh, 30 to 40 percent of the population stayed with Assad, not necessarily because they liked the government, but uh-huh. because the alternative was so much worse. <laughs> and then you had an opposition, perhaps also 30 to 40 percent, um, which was uh, uh, sunny and ranged from a rather small group that was moderate to much larger groups that became radical, the Jabhat al-Nusra, the al-Qaeda affiliate, and then, of course, uh, the Islamic State, which is the group that controls most of the territory. And finally, in this equation, uh, in the, all along the northern border of Syria are the Kurds, yes. uh, who, uh, whose dominant political party is the um, PYD, uh, and this is an affiliate of the Turkish-Kurdish movement, the, the Kurdish uh, Workers' Party, which we consider to be terrorist. Hmm. But we are, oddly, while the, the, hate, the, 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 the parent group we consider to be terrorist the Syrian branch, we have now ended up uh, have ended up being our main allies. And mm. this group, as I said, is they're very strongly secular. They believe in, in women's rights. So uh, oh, uh, really? uh, the, every office they have, they have three uh, cantons. Each of the governors, there's a male governor and a female governor, equal distribution of men and women in administration and in their legislative bodies. Wow, that is quite the mishmash. And, you know, I want to get back to... You know the the the, ar- the uh, idea of arming the so-called moderates, of which you you say there there are some. Y- y- there are so many different factions, as you were just describing. Each one, you know, strongly believing in what they're for and opposing what others are for, and feeling like you know their lives are threatened uh, by the others. Is Syria? really a nation, as we think of nations, like, like a tribe, people belong to a nation. Uh, is it possible that, as with uh, Marshal Tito in Yugoslavia, that only a strong dictator could actually 
hold together what are really separate and distinct nations? Well, Syria is not a nation. Uh, in, in fact, there are very few nations uh, in the sense that we know them, or the nation state mm -hmm. uh, in, in the Middle East. Uh, these are lines that were drawn uh, after the end of the First World War right. by the uh, vic victorious powers, notably the uh, British and the French, to suit their colonial ambitions. Mm -hmm. uh, and they don't match up with, 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 with ethnicity uh, uh, and identity, and, and that has always been a problem. Now, in the west of Syria, which is really the heartland of Syria, from Damascus to Aleppo, uh, there ha even though it's a been a, it's been really a mosaic, there has been a common sense of a, of a, of, a, of, a, of a, an identity, of, if you will, of a Syrian identity. Uh -huh. uh, that is now breaking down, mm -hmm. uh, particularly as the Alawites, uh, who occupy the region of Syria along the coast, uh, feel threatened with genocide should the uh, mm. Sunni, uh, Sunnis prevail, and so. Many of them are moving back to the traditional Alawite um, uh, territory in the so-called Alawite Mountains. Uh, the Kurds uh, really haven't shared the Syrian identity, um, and they're again along the border with Turkey. Uh, and the, the Sunnis, the strength of the Islamic State is in the east of Syria, along the Euphrates River Valley. And this is a, a barren, backward area uh, it was really a, a difficult place, grim place before uh, ISIS emerged, and is now much grimmer today. And it's really nothing like the cosmopolitan uh, part of Syria that's along the uh, uh, Mediterranean coast. Uh, there isn't yet a, a separatist movement in Syria. Oh. That is, there aren't groups who want to break away from Syria. Uh, but it's hard to see the country being put back together either. Mm. If you just tuned in to Keeping Democracy Live, Bert Cohen here. Our guest today is Ambassador Peter Galbraith, and we are talking about uh, Syria and Iraq and Iran and what is going on in the region and what might be realistic for the future. Interesting, you talked about no uh, secessionist movements as of yet. A few months ago, I saw a video of ISIS fighters on a bulldozer uh, going across the Sykes-Pico line. And this was this moment of triumph for them. Most Americans, I don't think, are aware of the Sykes-Pico line. Uh, and uh, this, I, I wonder if there are grudges that are pff, about 100 years old factoring into today's actions. It seems like most people, especially in that region, uh, do have a greater sense of uh, historical identity. And these lines, I mean, France basically owned uh, Syria af when the Western powers created the new borders with the fall of the Ottoman Empire after uh, the First World War. So do these ancient grudges factor into today's actions? Well, they're, they're certainly part of the history. The, the Sykes-Pico agreement uh, was a secret agreement between uh, uh, two uh, uh, rather junior uh, people, one, the, one in the British Foreign Office and uh, Mark Sykes and uh, Pico in the French uh, uh, Foreign Ministry. Uh, and it was a, a, a secret agreement to divide up the 
Middle East. Uh, it also involved giving the straits um, uh, to the Russians, that is, uh, yeah, yeah. Constantinople. And uh, it all became known after the Bolshevik Revolution, when the Bolsheviks uh, got found the files of the Russian foreign ministry and published all these documents, much uh-huh. to the embarrassment of the British and the French. But it, the, the fact that it was published then um, is something that was known has been known in the Arab world and uh, is, has been seen as the cynicism of the uh, Western powers. Uh, the Islamic State uh, basically is that, well, it is a Sunni movement, a, a Sunni fundamentalist movement, and so it has erased the um, the, 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 the physical barrier right. um, with the bulldozers between the Sunni areas of Iraq, which include Iraq's second largest city, Mosul, uh, and extends south uh, to um, the outskirts of Baghdad and includes the, the western part of Iraq, like Anbar, Fallujah, uh, between that area and the um, uh, eastern part of Syria, the Euphrates River Valley uh, towns, of which Raqqa is, the, of course, the the capital of the so-called Islamic State, uh, and they're saying, "Well, this is you know the, we've erased the, the boundaries from the colonial era, uh, from the post World War One era, and, and we Sunnis are all united in in a single state, and our claim extends to cover all of Iraq and all of Syria as well as uh, Jordan uh, and uh, uh, Palestine, uh, which of course would include Israel as well." So. I'm wondering what you know may may come of this, and let's take a look at uh, who ISIS is. I mean, there seems to be uh, recognition and agreement by both uh, the Obama administration and the Putin administration recently at the United Nations. Uh, President Putin and Obama each had very different uh, ideas of how best to fight ISIS, uh, and. Uh, well, what is what is Russia's interest in the region? They seem to have gotten suddenly very much involved. They have an air base, I believe it's in uh, Syria. Uh, you mentioned they, they got uh, Constantinople, which is, of course, Istanbul. Uh, there's the access to uh, the Black Sea and to the uh, Mediterranean that I would think uh, that they need. But but it seems that, that Putin is kind of blaming... Uh, uh, I'm not sure who he's, he's blaming now for this. And, uh, you know, they have some new initiatives uh, and they're supporting Assad. What, what do you make of, of the Russian position on this? And, and is this something that might really be helpful that perhaps we shouldn't be opposing so strongly? What do you think, Peter Galbraith? Well, well the first point is to say uh, in Syria, the, the choice is basically between the Assad regime and the Islamic extremists and, and, and the Islamic State. Wow. Uh, the United States um, have, did try to create a moderate Syrian force. Uh, in fact, we have a $500 million program to train them. Uh, and um, uh, there was recent testimony uh, by the general in charge who right. says uh, there are exactly four people that we've trained and who are now in fighting in Syria. So wow. about $125 million per, per <laughs> fighter. That's uh, not a sustainable program. Uh, a complete uh, failure, so, in other words, yeah. Yeah, so, so there really isn't a, a third option. We, we may wish there were, uh, uh, you know, uh, but, uh, but that's not the choice. The choice is between Assad and the Islamic State. Uh, and 
you know, to me, that's not a hard choice. The Islamic State is infinitely more brutal than the Assad regime, as brutal as the Assad regime is. But more importantly, the Assad regime uh, is run by minorities, that is the Alawites, and basically is the protector of the of, of the minorities, so that if the Assad regime prevails, Syria will remain a diverse place with Alawites, Christians, Druze, Kurds, whereas if the Islamic State uh, 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 prevails, those groups, some of them will face genocide and the others will, will be basically driven out. So uh, uh, a diverse Syria under Assad can be reformed later, but uh, it's what, if the Islamic uh, State prevails or the extremist prevails, you can never recreate a diverse Syria. Uh, and the Russians, uh, the Russian concerns are basically twofold. Uh, first, Russia worries about Sunni extremism because uh, it has a significant uh, Sunni population uh, that, and, and a, a part of it's very much radicalized as a result of the Chechen war uh-huh. in the 1990s and, and in the Southern Caucasus region. So Russia feels very vulnerable, much more vulnerable than the United States does to Sunni extremism. Uh, the Assad regime is fighting uh, Sunni extremism. Again, it's not a Sunni regime. It's an Alawite-led regime. Uh, so that's one reason for the Russian involvement. And the second reason is that uh, going back to the uh, Cold War period, that the Soviet Union always had very good relations with Syria. It was its major supplier of weapons. And the Soviets had a naval base in Tartus on the Mediterranean coast that the Russians still have. It's not strategically particularly important, but it's kind of a historic connection, uh, and and so this is the one place where Russia still has a has influence in in the Middle East, and Putin's not willing to give it up. Um, but uh, again, uh, there's a logic to the Russian position that shouldn't frighten Americans, uh, because they basically are, are saying, and in a choice among uh, two evils, there's one that is definitely much worse than the other. Uh, yes. That is to say. The Islamic State is much worse than the Assad government. No doubt about it. And the, the Russians, you know, the the idea of uh, uh, Americans possibly being concerned by this, uh, one hates to imagine the Russian weapons system and, you know, all their uh, military people on one side helping one side and the United States with all our military strength helping another side uh, there could be little flashpoints there, perhaps. And it's interesting, on September 28th at the U.N., uh, Obama said, before there's any progress, Assad has to go. That strikes me as an absolutely untenable, uh, unsustainable position. And I, 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 Obama, I would think, has to have some way of perhaps saving face, and I hate to think how often saving faces come into uh, foreign policy and how many lives uh, get lost because of that, but has Obama, you know, backed himself into an unsustainable corner on this? No, I don't think so. Um, the, 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 the first point I'd make is that the U.S. and the Russians are not really on, on opposite sides. Uh, the U.S. bombing in Syria has all been against the Islamic State, not against the Assad government or the Syrian army. Uh, and I, I don't see, that there's no sign that the United States is going to start to target any of the, uh, of the Syrian government forces. Uh, and those are the people that the Russians are supporting. So 
in essence, the Russians and the Americans have the same enemy. And there have been discussions between the Russians and, and, and the United States about deconflicting to make sure that if the Russians are flying air missions, for example, they aren't going to be flying over the same airspace and uh, have identification problems or whatever mm -hmm. with the Americans, because you don't want to have yeah. Russian planes shooting down American planes or vice no. versa. So there have yeah. been discussions about that. Second, while the, the press stories about uh, the uh, Putin and Obama speeches on September 28th, you know, say that they traded barbs on Syria and they had radically different versions, if you listen carefully, yeah, no, it wasn't quite the case. Uh. Uh, President Obama said, yes, we cannot go back to the status quo uh, before the uh, Syrian civil war started, uh, meaning uh, uh, that uh, we can't have a, go back to the absolute dictatorship of Bashar al-Assad. But that's, that, that's not going to happen no matter what. I mean, it, it's, it's, that, that, that's gone. Uh, I mean, Assad may remain in power, but he's not going to remain in power the way he was before this... Uh, uh, uprising began. And the second thing that, and, and Putin, of course, talked about Assad being the legitimate government of Syria, although actually he didn't talk so much about Assad. He simply talked about the legitimate government of Syria. Uh, and, and, mm -hmm. and, and the message there was that he wasn't necessarily linked to an individual, uh -huh. but he was linked to the continuation of, of, of what he called the legitimate government of Syria. Uh -huh. Obama, in his speech, said, well, uh, basically Assad could stay for a while, but that there had to be a transition. Well, though, in, in diplomatic speak, uh, mm -hmm. the term a while is a, is a wonderful weasel word. <laughs> a while can be a, a very long period of time. Uh, after all, even a, a normal human life uh, span is a while. Right. So I, I think that between those statements uh, that, that Putin and Obama made, while they seem to be uh, include barbs and, and mm -hmm. be contradictory, there actually is uh, a certain amount of, uh, a fair amount of, of common ground. And it's also not so difficult to envision how this might evolve. Um, you whereas Assad might well remain in president as for the interim, and that could be a period of many years, you could also have a transfer of many of the presidential powers to an elected parliament, uh, a parliament that would include, would represent all of Syria's main communities, Alawites, Christians, Druze, Kurds, uh, Sunnis, uh, where decisions might be taken by consensus or supermajority to make sure that most of the communities are on board, uh, and where uh, in parts of the country, which today are completely out of control of the government, like the Alawite areas, or, or certainly the Kurdish areas, and maybe in the future the Alawite areas, there would be a high level of self-government along with the right of these communities to self-defense. Anyhow, you, you, you include some of the loyal opposition, some of the moderate um, fighters who may not have a lot of military clout, but who, have, um, do, who do have support, and again, the Kurds, who are a significant military force, mm. about 30,000. Uh, and you might be able to put together a coalition that's broad enough to be able to, well, certainly to contain the Islamic State or maybe even to begin to roll it back. Uh, and I think that both the, I think this is the, what the Russians uh, are, are talking about. Uh, it's what the Iranians are talking about. And, and I think the United States is actually open to this. Interesting. A, a final point, Bert. Sure, go ahead. Uh, the, um, 
you know, in the United States, the uh, it's quite often that the Democratic foreign policy establishment uh, uh, always wants to demonstrate that it's more hawkish than the Republican. <laughs> right. Uh, and that was true in Syria when we had, you know, some of the liberal interventionists and so on talking about, aid, you know, getting involved, aiding the, uh, uh, the Syrian opposition and so on, without ever understanding who these people are. And, of course, uh, the people like John McCain were also very much on, on board. But the person who clearly was not on board was Barack Obama. Uh, and, uh, uh, you know, and, 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 and there have been a number of instances where the president himself has put the brakes on more hawkish, yes. uh, well-meaning, but more hawkish people in his own administration. Yes. Uh, and, and I think, I think he, he deserves a, a credit for his Syria policy. Um, uh, first, uh, he understood that the only, the only thing that would happen as a result of greater intervention was that more people would get killed. Now, we could say, you know, if, if you could support a moderate force and if it could get, have gotten rid of Assad back in 2011, that might have been a great thing and worth the investment. Right. But if the only result was to get more people killed, right. it wasn't worth doing. And that is exactly, I think, what the president concluded. Yeah. Uh, and the second thing, he's yeah. been much criticized for having drawn the red line, saying that it would be totally un- it was a red line that Assad couldn't use chemical weapons, and then having done nothing when he did. But that narrative is also false. Uh, the uh, in fact, what after the chemical weapons were used, and the circumstances actually are a bit ambig- uh, ambiguous. Very much after so. they were used, uh, Russia and the United States negotiated a deal in which Syria agreed to give up its chemical weapons, which was a much better outcome than to have had a few bombing runs that, say, in Damascus, that really wouldn't have accomplished anything. Well, true, bombing doesn't always work. As we know, the Germans bombed uh, London fairly heavily. The Germans didn't win. The Americans bombed North Vietnam pretty heavily. Uh, North Vietnam won that war. And it does appear that our bombing of ISIS positions often seems to end up just making them stronger. Is, is that accurate? And, and tell us about that. Is, it, is, it, uh, is the bombing working, or is it actually strengthening the appeal of ISIS? Uh, the, the, the basic lesson is that bombing works where you have partners on the ground, where there are ground forces, and it, it doesn't work uh, when you don't. Uh, and so the bombing in... Iraq and Syria, where it was in support of Kurdish ground forces in the two countries, it worked. It enabled the, it, it stopped the uh, ISIS assault against the Yazidis in August of 2014, yes, which was one of the most open and shut cases of genocide since uh, yeah. the, the genocide treaty was put into effect in 1948. Uh, the ISIS had declared that their goal was to exterminate the Yazidis, this yes. religious minority, and they were doing it. Uh, the U.S. intervened, and, and again, I give great credit to President Obama. The attacks on the Yazidis began on a Sunday, and on a Thursday, uh, he, he, he took action. Uh, and with, in support of the local Kurdish forces on the ground, able, were able to save the Yazidis who were on Sinjar Mountain, get them to safety. Uh, and then when ISIS uh, tried to attack Erbil, the capital of Ira- the Iraqi Kurdistan uh, region, 
the U.S. Uh, also intervened, and again, with the local forces on the ground, uh-huh. was able to stop ISIS. And the, the same story in Kobani, the embattled town in Syria. Oh, yeah. But where it hasn't worked is where there aren't local forces, or there aren't troops on the ground, or where the troops on the ground don't fight. Uh, when, when ISIS attacked the Kurdish region, uh, Kurdistan, in, in Iraq, what happened? Uh, the local population, the men who had previously served as Peshmerga, that's the, the Kurdish military, they immediately ran to the front line, grabbed their rusty AK-47s. Uh, you know, some of them hadn't fought in decades. You saw pictures of people with some rather large tummies. Yeah. But they went to the front line. When, when ISIS had attacked um, uh, the Iraqi army in Mosul in June, and again this last year in Ramadi, what happened? The Iraqi army just ran away. Yeah. Our Secretary of Defense, Ash Carter, uh, he committed uh, what, what, uh, a gaffe when he you know, said the trouble with the Iraqi army is they're cowards. They won't fight. A gaffe, incidentally, in Washington is what happens when a political leader inadvertently speaks the truth. <laughs> uh, and so airstrikes in support of the Iraqi army really make no sense because they aren't a fighting force on the ground. And the worst of it is, we now have a strategy where we're sending arms to the Iraqi army, but we're not sending it to the, the Kurdistan Peshmerga. So we're sending it to people who won't fight, uh, and yet we're only sending very limited arms to the ones who are actually on our side and who are fighting. Uh, the, 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 the main source of weapons that the Islamic State has... Yeah. Uh, and they've gotten about $2.5 billion worth of weapons. The main source is the United States, sure. uh, because these are weapons that we provided to the Iraqi army, and the Iraqi army surrendered without a fight. And if you just tuned in to Keeping Democracy Live, Bert Cohen here, our guest uh, Peter Galbraith, we're talking about uh, Syria and Iraq and ISIS. The strength of ISIS, they get a lot of their weapons from the United States, no doubt about it. Is it? I, I wonder if there's any similarity during the uh, the, the uh, Indochina War when uh, Kissinger uh, did carpet bombing of Cambodia, just total terror bombing, that led fairly directly to the horrible, uh, murderous government of, of Pol Pot. And I wonder if the government that that came to power or governments is, that came to power after our invasion of Iraq. Did they? Is that the reason ISIS exists? I've I've heard it said that pe- people think that uh, you know without our support of the uh, the new government of of uh, Iraq, perhaps ISIS might not be so strong. What do you know about that, Peter? Well, uh, let's be clear. Uh, one of the arguments that was put forward for the invasion of Iraq in two thousand and three was. Saddam Hussein's connection with terrorism and al-Qaeda, and that we were doing this as part of the defense of the homeland against the al-Qaeda threat. Of course, not only were there no weapons of mass destruction in Iraq, there was no al-Qaeda in Iraq. Right. But now, uh, 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 Iraq is uh, 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 terrorism central. I can't say quite that it's al-Qaeda central, because, in fact, the Islamic State is a group far more radical than al-Qaeda. Yes. Uh, uh, um, And and all that is the direct result of the 
a direct consequence uh, of the American invasion, or at least it wouldn't have happened if the American invasion hadn't taken place. Mm. That said, uh, what happened is, after the American invasion, uh, the United States uh, held uh, democratic elections in Iraq, and through the democratic process, uh, the Iraq's majority, which is our Shiite Muslims, who had been repressed for 1,400 years and certainly through the entire history of Iraq, voted uh, almost unanimously for Shiite religious parties that were closely aligned with Iran. Uh, and uh, from the perspective of the Sunnis, who actually resisted the invasion and then uh, the post-invasion government, um, uh, this was an unacceptable outcome. Uh, first, they, they'd always considered Iraq to be their country, Mm. And now it was being defined again, I want to emphasize, through the democratic process as a state that, that didn't include them. And even for Sunnis who weren't particularly religious, it, they, they couldn't accept the idea that it was uh, going to be a Shiite state, because you know, that's not who they were. Uh, so that was part of it. Uh, and the Sunnis then welcomed uh, uh, the, the, they welcomed the foreign fighters, they welcomed the... Uh, uh, Iraqi extremists, uh, as long as they were attacking Americans, which they did only a bit, but they, they, they were attacking Shiites, so they were easy targets. You could blow up pilgrims, you could blow up uh, bus stations in the Shiite areas. They were killing tens of thousands of people. They only turned against the al-Qaeda extremists in 2007-2008 when... Um, when, when the al-Qaeda extremists began to turn against the Sunni leaders, and this happens in revolutionary movements, they, they began to assassinate the sheikhs and demand money from them and take their daughters in forced marriages. At that mm -hmm. point, the local Sunni establishment turned against al-Qaeda. They formed militias called the Awakening. Uh, they got money from the Americans, and in you know, a very short period of time, they eliminated al-Qaeda. And this then was somehow attributed to the, to the surge that Bush had, but in fact it was almost a... A, a completely unrelated <laughs> phenomenon. We then asked Maliki, the Shiite Prime Minister of Iraq, to include all these people from the Awakening in the Iraqi army. But from Maliki's point of view, what did the Iraqi army exist to do? Uh, to defend Iraq against whom? Not Iran, that was their closest ally, not the U.S. The U.S. was helping them against the Sunnis. <laughs> and the Sunnis... Uh, in fact, never, even though they'd gone turned against al-Qaeda, they never accepted the Shiite government in Iraq, they, and, and Maliki knew it. So he wasn't being unreasonable at all. Uh, uh, and, uh, in fact, in 2014, these Sunni units in the Iraqi army, uh, many of them simply collaborated with the Islamic State. Uh, so... We, we really have very, very profound divisions here. I guess. Uh, and uh, they're not, uh, they're, they're not going to be reconciled in any reasonable period of time. It might take, as you say, a while. <laughs> a long while. So uh, <laughs> it, it isn't, I mean, it, it, the, the, the invasion, without the invasion, none of this would happen. But the, the, the problem is, the fundamental problem is, is the deep divisions within Iraq. It, it's not a country. There aren't people right. called Iraqis. They, right. It's not how they see themselves. Right. Uh, and, and we continue uh, in this bizarre belief that we can reconstitute a country that's not really wanted by its own people. 
Right. It never really existed. And one of the things that I was impressed by uh, then candidate Joe Biden, 2008, he was saying, why don't we enable Iraq to divide up into its component parts, Kurdish, Sunni, and Shia? I don't know if that could have worked, but it seemed to make uh, some degree of sense. And at this point in time, as this is being recorded, uh, Biden is not yet running for president. Who the heck knows? Uh, so ISIS does... If, if I can... Yeah, please do. Respond to that. So, the, 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 you know, Biden was arguing for a federal solution, which is, in fact, what is in the Iraqi Constitution since 2005. Really? The book that I wrote in 2006 called... Um, the end of Iraq, uh, how, uh, how American incompetence created a war without end. And I have to say, nine years later, there's nothing about that book that I would say is out of date, right. uh, you, even from the title. No. Uh, but my, my point was a little different, which is that um, Iraq had broken up and that it couldn't be put back together. In other words, I know it, it wasn't for the U.S. to partition Iraq. True. Uh, you know, that's not our business. Absolutely. But we shouldn't be trying to put something back together. First, hmm. uh, it can't be done. And second, it's not worth doing. Uh, and, and, and that's the reality. So, and, 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 and yet our policies are based around the idea of one Iraq, and, and that's why we supply weapons to the Iraqi army, which many of which end up with the Islamic State, yeah. when we should be providing them to our friends, notably uh, the, the Kurdish, Kurdistan army, which, uh, you know, this is one of the most pro-American places in the entire world, and, and they're also the effective fighters. And what is the deal with, with the Kurds? It seems that, you know, the government of Turkey hates them and wants to kill them. Uh, why, why doesn't the U.S. come out and support them? We haven't been very active in supporting them, and as I think you mentioned, they're considered by us to be terrorists. Is that right? Well, <laughs> this is... Um, um, it's all very complicated. It depends for which sure. Kurds you're talking about. Oh, of course. <laughs> so in the, the, there, there is a Kurdistan region, which is on the verge of independence. They'll probably have a referendum really? on independence next year, wow. which is on the territory of, of Iraq today. Mm -hmm. It's the north and the northwest of Iraq. Uh, and that is... Um, a, 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 an entity that has good relations with the United States. We are providing weapons to them, but just not of the same caliber that we provide to the Iraqi army. Um, uh, the, uh, but these are the these are the most effective fighters, and and the Iraqi Kurdistan actually has very good relations with Turkey. It was yeah. Turkey that um, uh, sponsored or that built a pipeline to enable the Iraqi Kurdistan to export its own oil without permission from Baghdad. And, of course, it's ah. the export of oil that has given Iraqi Kurdistan the ability to be an independent state. So Turkey has facilitated that. Oh, wow. Uh, uh, and, and the reason is that the Erdogan government in Turkey sees the Kurds uh, not as a threat to Turkey, but as an extension of Turkey's influence, particularly against a Shiite. Uh, Erdogan in Turkey is a Sunni and, and, and heads a religious party. Uh, sees the Kurds who are Sunni as kind of allies against a Shiite-led, a Shiite-ruled, Iranian-backed Arab Iraq. Mm. Uh, but then there are uh, other Kurds. There's the Kurdistan Workers' Party, which is a Turkish-Kurdish party that had waged a, a war against the Turkish state beginning from 1984 to 1999. And, and then there was a peace process in recent years that Erdogan broke off 
for electoral reasons and hoping to rally Turks uh, around him uh, for elections that are due November 1. Uh, and so those are the ones that Turkey considers to be the bad Kurds and to be terrorists, as actually so does the United States and so does the European Union. And it, and it is the Syrian Kurds, just to make this more complicated, <laughs> who are the allies of the, who are really an offshoot of this Turkish Kurdish party, although the U.S. does not consider the Syrian Kurds to be uh, terrorists. So it, it really depends which Kurds you're talking about. Wow. As they used to say, you can't tell a player is without a scorecard. Even with a scorecard, okay, it's pretty confusing. It's, it's a bit of three-dimensional chess, and I'm, uh, <laughs> I apologize for doing it, but unless you get down at least to a certain granular level, Bert, you really can't understand the situation. And, and a, a, a great deal of the fault of the discussion about this, even by policy experts, but certainly as part of the, of the political process, uh, is that, you know, it, it, they, we use words like Iraqis and Syrians um, without understanding that, that the issues are, are, are far more, at a, at a, are at a different level. There really yeah. aren't people, know, there's certainly no people who are known as Iraqis, and there really is, are not Syrians in the sense of, of, uh, of a country where there's a, a government and, and uh, an opposition. You, you really need to go and understand the ethnic and uh, uh, religious dimension in these countries. Well, Peter, I wonder if that's part of the appeal of ISIS, that Islamic State, that's, that's pretty clear. It, maybe there are different factions of ISIS. I don't know. Are, are, are they... Let's look at ISIS a bit here, who they are. Are they winning hearts and minds, or is that their terror works and the majority of people in Syria and Iraq are actually against them but are merely afraid of them? What, what is their appeal and their political strength? Well, the, the, the first point is that this is a Sunni uh, extremist movement. Uh, the, the Sunnis, of course, uh, about uh, 80% of Muslims are Sunnis. That just means the Orthodox Muslims. Uh, and they consider the Shiites, which is the minority branch of Islam, to be uh, heretics or apostates, and, and, and therefore who should be killed. So uh, this is not a movement that has any appeal to uh, people who are not Sunnis. In fact, it's terrifying to people who are not Sunnis. So... 60% of Iraq's population are Shiites, people targeted for death by ISIS. So they, they have no possibility of going anyplace in Iraq beyond the Sunni areas. And the Kurds, uh, who are the other 20% 20, 20 of Iraq, are mortal enemies of the Islamic State, uh, because the Islamic State is also basically an Arab movement, and the Kurds are not Arab. They're also not, you know, they're not, they're not extremists. They're, they're very moderate in their religion. So uh, the Islamic State has no place to go. 80% of Iraq opposes it, but they are entrenched in the 20% that is Sunni. In the case of, uh, and, and, and not all, I, I want to be clear, not all Sunnis support the Islamic State either. There, in fact, sure. there, uh, there are many who, are, are, who oppose it and who are appalled by what it's done in the killings and, and, sure. and the destruction of Iraq's uh, Archaeological oh, heritage, yes, but so it, it has a it has a, a small base, uh, and which it holds has some popular support and and also holds by terror. In Syria, about sixty percent of the population is Sunni. Again, that's the that's the most that ISIS could ever have, 
because uh, it will it has no appeal to Kurds, Alawites, Christians, or Druze. I mean, again, they're all people targeted for being killed. Uh, and again, there's also a sizable chunk of Syrian Sunnis who are not particularly religious or uh, uh, or are moderate in their religion who despise ISIS. So it, its base in the population is 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 you know it couldn't be more than twenty or thirty percent in Syria. Um, and, 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 and that's one reason why we ought, ought not to get too excited about the threat from, from ISIS. In fact, it's a movement that's completely surrounded by enemies. Uh, in the south of Iraq are Shiites, they're enemies. In the west and north are the Kurds, uh, who are enemies, and behind them are Iran and Turkey. Uh, in the north of Syria are the Kurds, who are enemies, and in the west of Syria are Alawites, Druze, Christians, enemies, and in the south is Jordan, which is also an enemy. So... It's, it's not going anyplace. Um, um, it, it's uh, extremism, the videos they use, they, they, they can instill terror, they can get a lot of media attention. But um, they're not going to be marching, uh, they're, they're not, they, they can't escape uh, from Syria or Iraq, much less you know, march across Europe and, and uh, into uh, the United States. Oh my goodness, that's that's good to hear. I have to say, what what do you think might be the best policy for for dealing with ISIS? I mean, it seems that a lot of different forces are really against them, and yet it seems like people are coming from all over the world to fight with ISIS. You know, be be a uh, an ISIS fighter. What will they just go away of their own accord? Do you think, or, or if you were setting foreign policy? Peter Galbraith, what would you do? Well, the first point I make is, yeah, yes, they, they have attracted uh, fighters from uh, from Islamic countries uh, and 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 Muslims living in Western countries, and even a few non-Muslims who have converted. Uh, about thirty thousand fighters have come to, to join ISIS, and that. Uh, is about twice as many as the 15,000 who have been fighters who have been killed, including by American airstrikes. But in the scheme of things, I mean, there are 1.5 billion Muslims in the world. Mm. That's a really tiny percentage. Uh, and a great deal of it are people who are misfits uh, or feel very isolated in the places where they are or... Mm-hmm. In places like Tunisia, young men who have no economic future. So uh, it, 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 it hasn't attracted, you know, broad broad masses of support uh, from Muslims at all. In fact, uh, again, ninety eight percent of the Muslims uh, abhor what ISIS is doing and what it, what it stands for. Right. I'm sure. uh, so, and I, I think that's a you know, it's important to, have, to understand your enemy. And not to over either underestimate or overestimate them when you're trying to devise a strategy. Interesting. So, uh, Go ahead. If I were to be, be devising strategy, uh, you know, basically I would continue to support the people who surround ISIS, the enemies of ISIS. I would use airstrikes, uh, and I would recognize that there are no plausible ground troops that could defeat it. I would not send in U.S. ground troops because uh, we, you know, being mired in another Middle East adventure doesn't make make sense. Uh, on the other hand, I recognize they aren't going to go anyplace either. So we contain them. Contain them. Well, sometimes that works. What about 
we were just talking about ISIS actual power, and it seems a little bit less scary than we've been led to believe. Of course, fear is so uh, useful for politicians, as we know. Uh, and and the drum, you know, the fear of ISIS has been drummed up pretty effectively. Moving to to Syria, uh, what is Assad's actual power these days? I understand he controls less than a quarter of the country's geography. What about his his real strength? Is this so? It sounds like, if I'm reading you right, that that uh, Putin understands uh, the the actual political power, the political reality of Assad's power, and he's willing to to work with that to help defeat ISIS and to uh, stabilize the region. What, what what do you think of Assad's actual power now? Well, first, the areas controlled by the Syrian government are. Yeah, I, it, maybe it's a, a quarter of the territory of Syria, but most of the territory of Syria is desert, so uh, that's, that's not quite point. as meaningful a statistic as uh-huh. it might initially sound. Uh, the, uh, the, the, the areas under government control probably include a majority of the people of the Syria. It certainly includes uh, Damascus, parts of Aleppo, which is the largest city, um, and and parts of the other major cities along the. So, in terms uh, of the population, he has the, he, he is powerful, correct? Well, I mean, what I'm saying simply is that a probably a majority of Syrians live in areas that are controlled by the government. Uh-huh. But that said, the enemy is close at hand. I mean, from his point of view, there are suburbs of Damascus that are under the control of the extremists. Yeah. There is the city of Aleppo, uh, with, with some of its beautiful monuments, has been a battleground for three years. Uh, a lot part of it is destroyed, and parts of the city are held by uh, various rebel groups. Uh, so, uh, his, 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 you know, the, his power is very much um, uh, constrained. Um, I think he, the, the government survives uh, because there are too many Syrians, again, notably the Alawites, the Christians, the Druze, but also secular Sunnis, mm-hmm. that would lose everything if it fell. Wow. And again, it's not that they all like Assad, it is that they that, that from their point of view, the alternative is, is much worse. Uh-huh. Now, certainly... And, and, go ahead. And, and one of the problems, the challenges that the Syrian government has, well, first, as a war continues in these circumstances, uh, it's, it becomes harder and harder to get young men to, to fight in the army or to accept uh, draft calls. But also they're up against uh, an enemy, the Islamic State, which has been armed uh, indirectly by the United States. So, I and mean, this is the folly of supplying a, a sophisticated weapons to the Iraqi army. It, it has ended up in the hands of ISIS. Yeah, just terrible. Now, i got to ask about the factor of oil. You know, people have to wonder, you know, if it weren't for their oil there, if, if the United States just could wean ourselves off oil, perhaps the bad guys could disappear and it, and it wouldn't matter to us. How much uh, does, does oil play for the U.S.? Is that our only legitimate interest in the area? Well, I would not say it's a legitimate interest at all. Uh-huh. Um, I mean, I don't... But, 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 but frankly... Um, even if the U.S. weaned itself off of um, uh, off of Middle East oil, which in fact largely the United States has, yes, we've done uh, very we've well. Increased domestic production of um, 
of, of oil and gas, um, we are, you know, well, we're making uh, far too slow strides toward alternative energy, but it's, it's there on the, on the horizon. Uh, there's still going to be a global market for oil. Um, and, you know, even if you can generate electricity or drive cars with, with other technologies, you still need oil to fly airplanes and things like that. So it's going to be part of the, of the global economy. Uh, so the, the area is, is, is important in that sense. Uh, but I, I don't think, uh, you know, these are fairly large countries. I, I don't think we could simply, even if there was no oil at all, we could turn our back and, and allow this kind of conflict to, to take place in, in, uh, and do nothing about it in uh, you know, uh, such a central place in, on, on the planet. Well, we certainly can't dictate to them anymore. That has never worked. Well, thank you so much. Very informative. Uh, his uh, best-selling book is uh, The End of Iraq, How American Incompetence Created a War Without End, former Ambassador Peter Galbraith. Thanks so much. Very, very informative today. Thanks for being with us and keeping democracy alive. Well, Bert, uh, thank you again for having me and for, uh, for your excellent show. Thank you. Oh!